0: Margie, I'm really looking forward to our discussion with David Lewis today, where we're going to dive into the global supply chain and issues that companies need to be considering as they're looking at their supply chain. He is going to cover some of those buzzwords that are thrown out like ESG, what impact we're going to see with the executive order, what about potential legislation on the Wyden-Brown-Warner framework, and then also hit an industry lens perspective. So I think there's going to be a lot in a short amount of time.
1: That's right, Julie, and the topic of supply chains is so hot right now, I'm looking forward to getting a little more educated on the topic so that as I'm reading the headlines, I'll have a better understanding of all that I'm seeing and hearing. So, Julie, let's talk tax.
0: You're listening to Tap into Tax. PwC's podcast series covering current regulatory, legislative, and technology hot topics through the lens of our technical leaders, as well as process and technology subject matter specialists.
1: This podcast features discussions with some of our leading minds around tax, trade, and domestic policy. Stay tuned to our regular updates and subscribe to our series to get notified
0: as new episodes are published. Hello listeners and welcome to Tap into Tax. This is Julie Allen, I'm PwC's National Tax Services Market Leader and Tax M&A National Practice Leader. And joining me today is my co-host, Margie Shaw, PwC's US Tax Reporting and Strategy and East Region Leader. On today's episode of Tap into Tax, we're excited to welcome David Lewis. He is a principal in our tax policy services practice, who is here to discuss the changes happening in the global supply chain. So David, welcome to Tap into Tax.
2: Thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: And it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. So before we dive into too many details, let's first discuss where we are in 2021. You know, we are still enduring the effects of the pandemic and businesses are still adapting to the new normal of doing business around the world. We are seeing a rise in geopolitical and trade questions around the globe. And we're also hearing a lot about ESG and relationships to the supply chain. So David, what should companies be focused on in their supply chain and what changes should they consider making at this time? And how does that relate to the U.S. policy, trade and ESG landscape?
2: Well, Julie, I will tell you right now that companies are very focused on their supply chains. They have to be. With all the geopolitical and trade tensions, especially with China, many companies recognize the need to diversify and build resilience, more or less optionality, into their operations. PwC is regularly speaking with companies that are entertaining the idea of realigning and nearshoring their supply chains to more neutral or closer jurisdictions like Mexico or Puerto Rico. At the same time, many companies are wondering what to do next and are trying to avoid analysis paralysis. In my view, in these circumstances, it's all about controlling that which you can control. We know one thing, the overall framework in the corporate tax code of rate, beat, guilty, etc. from the TCJA seems to be surviving, albeit with some proposed changes, such as to FDII. I feel like we say the following a lot, but it's true. Companies evaluating changes to their supply chains and operating models should fully model out the implications of any realignment from several vantage points, Julie, including people, location, process, technology and importantly, tax. Additionally, companies must ensure they understand why a location was originally selected and how that factors into their existing strategy. Quite simply, it's also a time to look at the confluence of COVID-exposed supply risks, such as emerging policies for creating jobs the rise in the use of digital process management tools, and increased shareholder requirements for environmental, social, and corporate governance leadership. What does it mean to consider ESG when designing a supply chain? For example, do you avoid sourcing from less carbon-friendly suppliers? These are some of the things that companies must grapple with, and they all constitute the topics that should define an integrated system of change to address the shifting sands that create long-term value.
1: So David, President Biden recently released an executive order to review vulnerabilities in the U.S. supply of critical technologies, metals, and pharmaceuticals. Can you discuss with us what was precisely in that order?
2: Well, the order calls for two reviews. The first is a 100-day review of supply chain vulnerabilities in four key sectors, the defense industrial base, the public health and biological preparedness space, the information and communication sector, and the energy sector. This first review also has several federal departments, including agriculture, commerce, defense, energy, health and human services, homeland security, and transportation to produce reports providing overviews of the most important issues facing U.S. supply chains within a 100-day timeline. The second review, it's a year-long process, asks for a more comprehensive set of reports to the National Security Advisor and the Director of the National Economic Council. Agency heads, in this case, are expected to meet with industry leaders for feedback on the final report to President Biden that will likely include a number of proposed solutions. This is expected, as I said, to take about a year to complete and may not be finished until early 2022.
0: So, David, sticking with the executive order, it's my understanding that the order lays out a medium to long-term process for evaluating US supply issues and opportunities, analyzing potential solutions, and creating a strategy for eventual policy making. What are some of the long-term implications the executive order may have on US business?
2: Julie, these two reviews periods and the interest they incorporate to integrate industry perspectives give business leaders an opportunity to shape thinking ahead of the policy by taking a few steps. First, highlighting how their supply chain works, how much of it is handled by internal versus external resources, and what changes could be made to mitigate trade and supply vulnerability risks, and of course, the costs associated with those changes. Likewise, identifying where jobs exist along this supply chain and where jobs could be optimally reset to be done by U.S. workers should be a priority. And I think finally, showing the level of and timeline for investment that has gone into building current supply chains and what steps have been taken to align sourcing with content requirements, as well as the buildup of capacity in friendly countries should be shared. It's important for policymakers to understand you don't build some facilities such as a biotech pharmaceutical production plant in a day. It takes years to put these in the ground, and it'll be important for policymakers to understand those implications. Finally, the supply chain order, like most of the policies proposed by the new Biden administration so far, does take a whole of government approach, emphasizing climate change, diversity. American jobs and cybersecurity. And so business leaders need to be thinking about that and including that in their policy discussions and recommendations.
1: David, thinking through all of that from a U.S. perspective, do we expect potential tax legislation, for example, the recent Made in America and Widen Brown-Warner frameworks, to have a significant impact on how companies are going to organize their global footprint?
2: Margie, in my mind, the big question is whether any resulting legislation contains onshoring incentives as well as offshoring disincentives. At this point, specific incentives and disincentives are limited to the 10% made in America tax credit and disallowance of offshoring related deductions, as well as proposed changes to guilty and FDII to eliminate QBI which I will touch on in a moment, and as I mentioned, the denial of deductibility of expenses associated with offshoring. To me, the legislation seems light on on onshoring incentives, and it was certainly lighter than was campaigned on with respect to offshoring. Also, you know, we need to keep in mind that onshoring incentives as well as offshoring disincentives will vary in their impact depending on industry. But we do know this. Diversification of the supply chain is already driving discussions from a business and tax perspective. And any policies that may arise incentivizing onshoring or nearshoring should be factored into those considerations. For example, the Biden proposals seek to incentivize companies to onshore or nearshore supply chains and source manufacturing, including related jobs in the United States. There's a $52 billion in incentives to promote domestic manufacturing. There's a proposal to modernize supply chains, such as in the auto sector, like extending the 48C tax credit program. The president also calls for the creation of a new financing program to support debt and equity investments for manufacturing to strengthen the resilience of America's supply chain. Another interesting feature is the complete elimination of the tax incentive FDII, which the administration asserts does two things. One, gives corporations the incentive to reduce your investment by shifting assets abroad. And two, they assert is ineffective encouraging corporations to invest in R&D. So they propose that all revenue from repealing the FDII deduction would be used to incentivize R&D investments Within the United States. Of note, and as mentioned earlier, the Biden administration believes the combination of guilty and FDII creates incentives to offshore manufacturing to reduce a firm's overall taxes by minimizing their guilty inclusion and maximizing their FDII deduction by increasing foreign rather than domestic assets. I'm not aware of that being a prevalent activity, but it is a concern that the Biden administration has articulated. The president's proposal also seeks to ensure that large profitable corporations cannot exploit so-called loopholes in the tax code to get by without paying U.S. corporate taxes. So they include a 15% minimum tax on income corporations use to report their profits to investors. We know it as book income to backstop the tax plans, other ambitious reforms and apply only to the very largest corporations. Of course, in my opinion, I doubt Congress will wish to undermine some of the incentives they have enacted, and I'm gonna guess they would be reluctant to hand tax policy over to the Financial Accounting Standards Board. Outside the Biden proposal, it's worth noting other proposals, such as put forth by Senator Ron Wyden, who chairs the Senate Finance Committee. His proposal includes an FDII innovation framework, which would replace the FDII deemed intangible income with a new concept deemed innovation income. This new form of BII would be an amount of income equal to the share of expenses for innovation-spurring activities that occur in the U.S., such as R&D and worker training. And it would only apply to expenses for U.S. activities. And I know it's a long-winded answer, but not to be lost in evaluating the Biden and Wyden proposals is that we have to keep in mind penalizing companies in the U.S. tax code for manufacturing or providing services from abroad only generally disfavors U.S. companies versus their foreign-owned competitors. Now, I am aware and I have talked to foreign-headquartered companies who are also very concerned about these proposals. But oftentimes these disincentives do fall heavily on U.S. headquartered companies. Now, in that regard, I will note that the Biden proposal dropped the round trip rule and the 10% offshoring surtax that they included in their campaign proposals. And I think that was a good move against all these considerations. And as I alluded to earlier, companies should not only be looking at their global footprint, and modeling the effects of these proposals, but they need to be educating and engaging with policymakers now with concrete data regarding implications and other considerations of the actions that the Congress might be considering. Any potential realignment of the supply chain can have significant tax implications, either as a material net tax benefit or a prohibited cost. And you know, supply chain operations work hard to save every penny. But as companies know, tax costs can have a significant impact, perhaps much more than those pennies. On the flip side, if supply chain resilience comes with just a little cost, that can be an acceptable answer. So it's a long response to your question, Margie, but those are my thoughts.
1: Excellent. So let's now look outward for a bit. So while we're focused on what's happening here in the U.S., we also know that supply chains are changing around the world. So, David, can you tell us about some of the shifts happening in other jurisdictions that we should be watching out for?
2: Well, thanks, Margie. Worldwide governments are serious about rebuilding labor forces as the global economy recovers, as well as about reducing other things such as carbon footprints. And they're also serious about asserting sovereignty in critical technology and pharmaceutical trade. I also understand the supply chain redesigns are already underway at companies as companies continue to respond to an ongoing global trend of protectionist measures in trade and tax policies and competitive dynamics like the emphasis on faster fulfillment and sustainability. One industry of interest, for example, is the semiconductor manufacturing. You know, we note that semiconductor manufacturing capacity continues to shift to Asian economies which has already become an issue for the automobile manufacturers and other industries. In 2019, four of the six new semiconductor facilities opening globally were based in China, and all were outside the United States. I would note, with respect to that particular industry, that the previous Congress introduced bipartisan legislation called CHIPs, that would invest tens of billions of dollars in semiconductor manufacturing incentives and research initiatives over the next five to 10 years to strengthen and sustain American leadership in chip technology. And I would watch this idea. While it wasn't enacted in the last Congress, I think it will resurface and it could, in many respects, become a model for incentivizing onshoring in other industries as well.
1: So you raise an interesting point, industry specifics matter. So let's dive into some of the industry-specific trends that we've been seeing. In 2020, the pandemic brought about survivors and thrivers when it came to certain industries. So where do things stand today in 2021?
2: I think one trend was that industries that traditionally keep inventories low or work with long lead times have been particularly affected by the pandemic. U.S. automakers, for example, as previously noted, cut production this year due to a shortage of semiconductors, while surging demand for health products set off a scramble in 2020. You know, acute disruptions like these are rare, but they aren't unheard of, and they can trigger a range of immediate actions meant to build up supply and manage the impact on cash flow and pricing that results. And that's what we talk about when we refer to resilience. This time, and back to the president's executive order, shortages are exacerbating perceived threats to U.S. industry posed by supply chains where much of the production is concentrated outside the United States in the product areas under review.
0: So David, we have talked about a lot today about the global supply chain and the impact that it's going to have on companies' decision-making. We've gone through ESG, the executive order, potential legislation, and also focused on looking at their decisions through an industry lens. That's a lot. So before we close out today, let's discuss the practical steps companies should be taking now as supply chain changes are going to be a part of emphasis in the Biden administration. And so, David, what are the key initiatives business leaders need to be implementing right now before we have any specific guidance?
2: Julie, it's a great question. I think that companies should be reviewing their sourcing and supply chain strategy and options ahead of policy actions. Again, we say it a lot, but they need to model the implications of possible legislative or regulatory action that may result on near and longer-term bases. And understanding these implications, engage with policymakers in a dialogue about their findings. Companies might also want to quantify the types of incentives they would need to move the die in terms of onshoring as well. They need to be speaking, educating members of Congress about what is currently in the TCJA and how it has affected their company. It is important for companies to proactively develop their story, a positive narrative of job growth, skills training, and how that is relative to how they are contributing to the domestic economy, either through job creation or investments. And finally, what will a 28% corporate rate and tightening of international provisions related to foreign income mean for competitiveness for companies, both here in the U.S. and abroad? These are all critical considerations. Companies should be, if they are not already, Looking at the confluence of policy areas when considering options and solutions for their supply chain that will shore up vulnerabilities brought about by pandemics, climate change, geopolitical pressure, and other societal demands. And, you know, just reemphasizing, companies should consider the tax impact from both the US and non US perspective of where they are currently located and if they are considering relocating elements of their supply chain. They need to think about the tax impact. They also need to think about its impact on their people, their processes, and their technology. And so my final word would be, don't wait. Now is the time to understand the variety of policy implications, including tax, because tax will move quickly over the next several months. But you need to understand the variety of policy implications to supply chains, and it may be necessary to rethink and reconsider your supply chain design.
1: David, we appreciate all the insights that you've shared with us today as we watch these issues continue to develop. We see companies trying to take well-intentioned ESG goals and growth strategies through to their practical application, as well as designing today's supply chains to reflect the current realities and is an important issue for us all to watch closely. Thank you listeners for joining us today and we'll be speaking with you all again soon.
2: This podcast is brought to you by PwC. All rights reserved. PwC refers to the US member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com/structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.